What's good? What's good? Good morning. How's everybody doing? That's good to hear. <laughs> I will try. I will try. So, first and foremost, I want to just say thank you to John for even allowing me to have the honor and the privilege to share with the saints this morning. You know, I'm a sinner. I have no real reason to be able to be on stage and teach you anything. You know, so the fact that I'm even allowed to do this, I'm very humbled. So, so thank you for that. But um, um, so we've been, last few weeks, if you've been tracking with us, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And the, the overarching theme, right, has been greater love, right? So what we're going to do is look at a portion of John 7. And there's just too much information in, in the whole chapter. So we're going to look at a portion. We're going to look at a, a very spicy spirited discussion that Jesus has with his brothers. And what I want to focus on in this particular passage is two things happen here that can tempt Jesus in not exercising a greater love. And the reason why I want to focus on that is because as believers, these are also things that will tempt us for not exercising a greater love. All right, so with that being said, John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, before we get into the meat of the matter, there's some background information that we need to have, right? It it talks about a particular festival. Anytime a a scripture talks about an event or a place, you should find out what that event or place is. If you want to properly exegete the text. Exegete is a $20 word, meaning to fully comprehend the context of that passage, right? So... (laughs) So, in Leviticus 23, starting in verse 41, you shall keep it as a festival to the Lord seven days in the year. You shall keep it in the seventh month as a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall live in booths for seven days. All that are citizens in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Now, that's what Torah dictates. But as the generations and years progress, they added some more ceremonies to this festival. And in Manners and Customs of the Bible, it says, in addition to the ceremonies originally prescribed at the institution of the Feast of Tabernacles, where several others of a later date, among these 
were the daily drawing of water from the pool of Siloam. Every daybreak of the seven days of the feast, a priest went to the pool of Shalom and filled with water a golden pitcher containing about two and one-half pints. He was accompanied by a procession of the people and musicians. On returning to the temple, he was welcomed with three blasts from a trumpet. And going to the west side of the great altar, he poured the water from the golden pitcher into a silver basin, which had holes in the bottom through which the water was carried off. This, this ceremony was accompanied with songs and shouts from the people and the sound of trumpets. It is supposed to have been designed to represent three distinct things. One, a memorial of the water provided for their fathers in the desert. Two, a symbol of the forthcoming, quote, latter rain. Three, a representation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the coming of the Messiah. So you have all this going on at this particular festival. So you need to have that background noise when you read this passage, because you want to know what the original audience knew at that time, so you can catch what's going on. Okay? So, now, one of the things that can keep you from having a greater love is when others don't believe you. Okay? Now, Jesus was going on a pretty, pretty good streak here, right? Because in previous texts, right there, all right, boom, all right. So he turns water into, into wine, the healing at the pool on the Sabbath, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So he's real popular at this time for all the wrong reasons, though, right? And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows the hearts of all men. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to check your temperature. And I'm going to have discussions with you that's going to be very troubling, right? So I'm going to talk about how I am the bread of life, and you have to eat of my flesh in order to be saved. And, of course, when that occurred in John 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, okay? Now, the timing could have been more worse for this to occur, because remember, this particular festival is packed with messianic expectations. You know, you want to come in the festival with some great momentum, you know, but he actually lost followers going into this festival. And of course, the brothers saw this. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't believe you. We don't think you are who you say you are. Right? Now, remember, these are blood relatives. They were probably there at, at his bar mitzvah. They know him better than anyone else. So imagine the people closest to you not believing who you are and what you're doing. Can anyone relate to that? <laughs> right? It's, 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 not, it, it's, it's very difficult to love people that don't believe you. And think about it, right? They don't believe in your Christianity. Not because you've been compromising. You've actually been a great Christian. You know, they've seen the changes in, in your life. You, you've made, you've repented of a bunch of different things, but you have certain convictions that trouble people. They don't like that. So we can't believe that, right? So they doubt you, just like the brothers doubt Christ. And doubt can be very infectious. And as anything we've learned in the last two years, we are trying our best to avoid being infected. 
right? We shut down the city, we're wearing masks, we got sanitizer. If somebody even has the sniffles next to us, we give them the side eye, we walk the other way, right? We're doing everything we can not to be infected. What does Jesus do in order not to be infected by his family's doubts, right? He says, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. Jesus has an agenda. There's a plan in place, and he believes in the plan. In fact, he trusts the process. Now, for those of us who are into sports, we know this term pretty well, right? Trust the process is a slogan used by fans of the NBA Philadelphia 76ers, though it has since become popular elsewhere in sports and culture. Coined during a rough patch for the term for the team, it basically means things may look bad now, but we have a plan in place to make it better. Right? Jesus trusted the process. And he knew that the process was going to get a whole lot worse before it got better. He was going to be betrayed by one of his apostles. The, basically, the Roman soldiers come, the cops come, and everybody bounces. They flee. Bam! They're gone. He's by himself. And he dies one of the most horrible deaths any human can ever experience. But then three days later, he ascends. He, he resurrects. And these brothers become believers. In fact, James heads the church of Jerusalem because he trusts the process. So as Christians, what do we do to stay away from doubt? We got to trust the process. Because we have a, a plan in place as well. It's written in scripture. And if we read it and we believe it and we execute it, then, you know, we are prepared for the end game. You know, now none of us know when the end will actually arrive. But as Dr. Stephen Strange says in the Avengers, we are in the end game now. We're in, it, we're in it now. So we need to trust the process, right? The second thing that could cause someone not to be loving is when others tell you how you should be. Right? We enjoy that when people tell us how we should be. The brothers tell Jesus how he should Jesus. Listen, anyone that wants to be, you know, famous or a big shot, well, they got to go to the festival. Why? Because in this festival, there's deep, high messianic expectations. So if someone is the Mashiach, if someone's claiming to be the anointed one, well, this is the time. So what you waiting for? Let's go. ASAP. Let's get it going. Right? They're telling Jesus how he should operate. This is how you should maneuver, Jesus. This is how you should be who you say you are, Jesus, right? And what's crazy is that 2,000 years later, people are still telling Jesus how he should Jesus, right? For example, we have patriotic, Americanized, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition Jesus. We got him, right? But then you got fruits and berries, fair trade coffee, <laughs> vegan diet, hipster Jesus, right? We, we, people see Jesus like that, you know? Then you got, you know, classic white Jesus, 
with the albuterol VO5 hot oil treatment <laughs> in his hair, right? And some of us, we don't like that one, so we, we made a black version of that. So I guess this is lustrous silk Jesus, right? <laughs> now, as a sidebar, Jesus wasn't European. I, I have to say it because the internet will kill me if I don't say it, okay? He, he didn't look like Thor, but he didn't look like Shaka Zulu either. <laughs> Let's just keep it 100, all right? Let's just, all right? But the point is, you don't get to have your own Jesus. You don't get Fisher-Price, My First Messiah starter kit. You don't get to have one of those. You know what you do get? The Jesus that's in the Bible. And that guy is amazing. But, you know, maybe, just maybe, if you take your presuppositions out and you don't read your opinions in the text and you allow the Bible to speak for itself, maybe you'll be introduced, perhaps for the first time ever, to the King and Kings and Lord of Lords. Just an idea, you know? Now, just like they told Jesus how to Jesus, non-believers love to tell Christians how they should Christian, right? And there's two little things that they, they love to point out for us, right? One of them is, do not judge, right? And then they'll, they'll, they'll try to flip the whole King James Bible on us, you know, do not judge lest you judge, right? And they think they killed the game with us because I'm using your book against you, pow, pow. I got you, right? Well, first of all, you, you take it out of context, right? Because it's not that we are not to judge. It's be careful how you judge. Oh, and by the way, the fact that you told me not to judge, guess what you just did? You judged me. So I can't judge, but you can. Got it, right? A another thing they tell us to do as Christians, right, is... You should be tolerant of others. Now, the word tolerant has gone through a little remix as of late, you know? Because the actual definition of being tolerant means, though I disagree with what you are doing, I still love you, we're still friends, we could go out for coffee, right? For example, there are many of us here and on the interwebs who are Met fans for some strange reason, <laughs> right? I'm a Yankee fan. I don't hold that against you. I love you just as much, even though I disagree with your horrible decision of sport of team affiliation. That doesn't change how I feel. I still love you. But that's not what tolerance means anymore, does it? Tolerance is not only do I accept what you're doing, I applaud and affirm whatever it is that you're doing, right or wrong. But again, how come you're not applauding and affirming what I'm doing? So I can't celebrate what I'm doing, but I'm supposed to celebrate what you're doing. Got it. I got it. So let me write that down. You, the same standard you use for me won't be used for you. Okay. Okay. You see what I mean? So it's like, but again, it's the same thing that we need from the first point. We need to trust the process. Right? Christ knew who he was. There was no doubt. We should have no doubt of us being in Christ. Right? We have to trust that process. We have to trust our discipleship, our growing into Christ. Right? A non-believer don't get to tell me how to be like Christ. Christ tells me. The Word of God tells me. 
That's who dictates how I move. Not a YouTube video, not, no one. No, some pundit on TV. No, 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 the word of God tells me. The word of God tells me how I should, Jesus. Okay? So, as we get into the mindset and focusing on the breaking of bread and, and drinking of the, of the fruit of the vine, Jesus does go to the festival. And remember, at this point, there was this ceremony of water that would take from the pool of Siloam and bring it into the temple. And this water represented, you know, the Messiah and the pouring out of God's spirit, right? This is something that's already in their heads. So keep that in your head as we read this verse. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But within the context of this water ceremony. This is when he arrives at the festival. And he says, I'm the living water. Which is interesting because in the previous festival, in chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. And in the ancient Near East, you need bread and water to sustain yourself. Right. Whether you are poor or you're the prince, you have an expectation of bread and water on your table. You know, and this, this rushing of the Spirit, because in the Old Testament, only a select few were filled with God's Spirit. Only the prophets. But Christ is saying, if you come to me, you will all be filled with this living water. If you come to me. If you come to me. So he shows up at the festival. Not when his family tells him to, but he shows up at the time that, that he had that was part of his plan. So as we take this communion, let us remember that we have made a commitment to a Messiah that can sustain us, that gives us the ability to trust the process, and that we could be more like him every day since we are in the end game. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, thank you for this sacrifice. Thank you for allowing yourself to be beaten beyond human comprehension, God. That you was marred beyond your humanity. That you were so beaten from an emotional and physical standpoint. And you allowed it to happen, God. That you allowed this process to occur because you knew that when it was all said and done, you would be giving us the ability to have our sins forgiven, and that we can have this, this living water put in us, God. And may that never be an old story to us. May it not be some myth or legend. May it be as fresh as we once heard it, Lord, so that we are convicted and encouraged and empowered by you, so that your living water not only comes through us, but we can partake and give it to others so that we all can resemble you at the end of days. 
Thank you so much for this time. And pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.